Hey, very good morning, family. Morning, happy new year to all of you. As you know, we are starting our study series on the book of Romans. So let us pray as we begin. And as we pray, let me quote uh, from verses 16 to 17 of chapter 1, Romans. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, of your salvation. We pray that, Lord, truly this gospel will go forth to the ends of the world. And we thank you for the privilege you have given to us to be part of this family, of this gospel, not just to receive it, but also to proclaim it. So keep us faithful as we hear your word and act upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on New Year's Day, my wife and I, we went to watch the movie Eight Man Number 4. Okay, So this is the fourth in the series. For the whole of 2019, we, I think we only managed to watch one movie in the theatres. Uh, so we got off to a good start. Hopefully, for in 2020, we can watch more movies together. Anyway, without spoiling the plot of the show, the Eight Man series in all four episodes had a recurring theme, and that is one of racial prejudice, racial discrimination. In the very first movie, it was set in the context of World War II, it was the Japanese versus the Chinese. And then in the other three movies, it was basically the Anglo-Saxon American uh, versus prejudice against the Chinese. Now, if we are honest, we recognize that racial discrimination, racial prejudice is not something that is confined only to the Iman movie series, Really, it's all around us. And worse, I fear, it is within us. Racial discrimination is a disease that has plagued humanity since the beginning of time. And unfortunately, this is so even of the early church. We first hear of the church in Rome in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. By the way, I will not have uh, much of the scripture text in, in uh, full in the slides, so you need to refer along in your own Bibles, whether it's your devices or the, the pew Bibles. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we read of the command by Emperor Claudius to chase all the Jews, Jews out of Rome. And so when the Jews left, uh, some years later they returned, the Jewish Christians returned to Rome, they discovered that the church there had changed dramatically. Now there were a lot of Gentile believers. Naturally so, right? The Jews were chased out. So the church grew through the Gentile converts. And so Paul essentially wrote the letter of Romans to address this great racial discrimination between the Jews and the Gentile believers. This time around, ironically, the discrimination was not so much the Jews against the Gentiles, like the book of Galatians, but it was the Gentiles did not look at the Gen uh, Jew Jewish believers favorably. And so Paul had to write about how God's salvation first of all came to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. If you read verses 5 to 6 in chapter 1, you will notice that Paul's target audience in this letter are actually Gentile believers. So that's the context of the book of Romans. Many people think that Paul wrote this letter primarily as a theological treatise, uh, that his main purpose is to present a very well-articulated version of the gospel. So it's like theological writing to the best, right? While that is true, without diminishing the fact that Romans does present a very elaborate and firm foundation of the gospel, but actually, sorry to burst your bubble, it is not a theological treatise at all. Paul was writing primarily with a real context in mind. And as I explained to you, 
there was a real situation in the ground, on the ground in Rome, and that is this racial discrimination. And Paul wrote to address this issue at the heart of the church. And so we should not read the letter of Romans like we read John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. Wow, great marvel of work, theological work. Neither should we try to read it like Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, another great theological work. These people were writing so-called in an ivory tower far removed from the pastoral realities of life, but not Paul. Paul was intimately aware of what was happening in the church in Rome, and he wrote to address a very specific situation. So here we learn one of the side points is that we must be careful not to extract Christianity from its grounded realities and turn it into a high moral religion or some philosophy. We must never do that. We must never reduce Christianity to simply a set of beliefs or list of do's and don'ts, a list of rules to follow. That is completely missing the point. Biblical Christianity, we wait, the right way to understand it, has three dimensions. Number one, orthodoxy. Right beliefs. The right truths, the right understanding. But it must also lead on to autopathos, right emotions. And then autopraxis, the right action, the right practice, the way of living. It takes really into account that the human being, the whole human being is holistic. We are not just made out of people with minds, right? We also have a body. God has given to us this physical body. And not only that, we also have emotions in the Greek psyche, right? Which from which we get the word psychology. So the human being is holistic. And the gospel, Christianity, must be situated in the same context, a holistic understanding. And that's really how we should understand this book of Romans too. Paul begins by orthodoxy, chapters 1 to 8, explaining what the gospel is about, why these truths are so important. And then he engages autopathos, chapters 9 to 11, talking about the right emotions, and then autopraxis, chapters 12 to 15, and solve with chapter 16 on some greetings. I present to you chapters 9 to 11 under autopathos because Paul there addresses really the heart of the problem, racial discrimination. So all these right truths lead to the practical situation on the ground. Why the Gentile believers should not discriminate against the Jews. And Paul there speaks about his heart's desire for his fellow Jews to be saved. And then he concludes that Gentiles should not feel superior about their faith because they were grafted in to the branch, the main original branch, which came from the Jews. And then if you look carefully, chapter 11, actually Paul ends with a great doxology where he praises God with this Wonderful doxology, praising God for His wisdom and His goodness. And that's why I place uh, these three chapters under autopathos, because there was real emotion going on, even as Paul penned that letter. For these reasons, why uh, we should not uh, divorce autopathos and autopraxis from uh, orthodoxy, I have uh, resisted persistent calls by cell leaders to give a very solid uh, study guide on Romans. I have chosen not to give resources that are information-centric. I want us to really discuss how the gospel impacts our life, how the Word of God really challenges us in our own living. I don't want us to just stay merely at the level of hate knowledge, which we have been blessed in this globalized world. We can check out information really anytime we want. But what I'm really after is a holistic Christian, one who is grounded in the Christian community here. We're not just talking about every fairy stuff, but really because we have a relationship with each other, but we also have accompanying right feelings and actions as we hear the Word of God. So that's side point number one. The first reason is, uh, just to recap, the first reason why Paul wrote this letter is to address the Gentile believers. 
Okay, so that's the first reason. The other two reasons that Paul states in his introduction why he wrote this letter. Number one, a second reason is because he wants to, to build up the faith of the church believers, to build up their faith. And then thirdly, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I read to you verses 9 to 13. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So here we see the second reason Paul wants to build up the faith of the believers at Rome. He himself will be encouraged by their faith. And then verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So that's the, the reason that Paul writes very clearly in his letters, uh, the reasons why he's going to Rome. Right? So this letter is to precede his arrival. So Paul in this uh, passage here talks about the way has been opened for him to come to preach the gospel. From the book of Acts, we recognize that this way that is open for God, by God for Paul actually went through persecution. In Acts chapter 20 to verse uh, chapter 20 to 28, you can read all the details of this uh, narrative of how eventually Paul went to uh, Rome through a very long way. He went to Jerusalem, and then at Jerusalem he was persecuted, he was thrown into jail. Then he tried to appeal to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen, and then so eventually he was sent to Rome, but not before some jail time and some shipwrecks. So it's a very long journey. The so-called God opened the way for him, but eventually he got to Rome. Scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter in the spring of AD 56 and eventually reached Rome only in AD 58 or 59. So when God opened the way, it was a, quite a long way and a difficult journey for him to get there. Most of us think that if God has opened up a way for us, the journey will be smooth sailing. You know, wow, red carpet, you can just get to the goal that God has given to you. But not for Paul and really not for us. If you truly understand God's way of working, it's not our human way of understanding. Of course, to be fair, Paul himself in Romans 15, 23 to 33, states very clearly when he wrote this letter, he hoped to be delivered from persecution. He hoped that on his way uh, to Spain, he may pass by Rome. So at the point of writing, he himself did not expect all these persecutions. Regardless, he was submissive to God's plan. God altered his plans, brought him by a different way, completely different way, but Paul was unhindered. He wasn't so much fixed on how he got to Rome as much as he was single-minded in getting to Rome. The journey did not matter so much to him in this case, but really to get to Rome to preach the gospel. We know from Acts chapter 28, the last two verses, that Paul eventually got his wish. He went to Rome and he was there for two whole years preaching the gospel unhindered very boldly. So as we begin this sermon series on the book of Romans, we have to ask ourselves these questions. What is it about the gospel that made Paul so adamant, so determined to reach Rome? What is it about the gospel that Paul elaborated on in so much details in the first eight chapters? What is it about the gospel that Paul was willing to suffer so much and even die just to preach it? Paul himself says in verses 14 to 15 that he is obligated to preach the gospel and states his own eagerness to preach this gospel. So we need to explore this question. Why was Paul himself 
personally so determined? And what is it about the beauty of the gospel that made Paul a, a really a willing slave to this message? Let's begin with Paul's own conversion account. The book of Acts details his conversion story, Acts chapter 9, verse 20, and chapter 26. You can read again on this account on your own. Essentially, Paul was persecuting Christians as a Pharisee, but Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and his life was completely turned around. By the way here, uh, some of us have understood for years that Paul basically changed his name to Saul, uh, from Saul after he became a Christian. That's not actually correct. If you read Acts chapter 13, verse 9, there it states very clearly, Paul, also, uh, Saul, also known as Paul. So he did not change his name. Basically, it was him, but with two different names. Give you a simple illustration here. My English name is Anthony Lee. My Chinese name is Li Hanwen. However you call me, I will respond to you. Whether you call me Anthony or Hanwen, I will respond to you because it's my name. Or if you like my grandmother, who is not English educated, she calls me Tony, I, I will respond also. <laughs> right? Same. Different names, so-called, but it's referring to the same person. So Paul's name was his name to the Gentiles. Saul, Old Testament name to the Jews. He did not change his name. He just had different names for the different audiences that he was preaching to. And so, coming back to Paul's conversion story, after he uh, was struck blind a meeting with Jesus, Jesus sent one of his disciples, Ananias, with a message to Saul. And this is what Ananias said to Saul, uh, was told to say to Saul, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. And so we discover that for Paul himself, he's obligated to preach the gospel because this is the direct command from our Lord Jesus for him. He's specifically commissioned by God to be an uh, apostle to the Gentiles. If you read Romans 11, verse 13, and Galatians 2, 8, Paul himself writes this, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. He knows his mission very clearly from God. This is his assignment. The word apostle simply means sent in the original Greek. Okay, so don't uh, try to be intimidated by this word. It simply means one who is sent with a message, with an assignment, with an objective. Right? So Paul was an apostle because he was sent, commissioned by God for a purpose, which is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul preached because he was sent. Full stop. Do we recognize, family and friends, that indeed all of us, in some way, is also sent by the Lord? All of us are sent by the Lord. And all of us have the same message. Yes, our context is different. Some of us are called... Uh, to a certain place in the private sector. Some of us are called by God to work in the government sector. Wherever we are, we, some of us are called to be uh, homemakers. But all of us have the same message. It's just that our specific callings differ. So the question for us is, have we received our specific callings from God? Have we received our specific callings from God? And what is your specific assignment? Speaking to one of the zone leaders after the 8M service, she's, she's working in the marketplace what she says, her personal calling from God is to comfort God's people. So you understand, it's not a mutually exclusive kind of thing. You can be called to the marketplace, but yet you have a specific calling from God to reach out to God's people in a certain way. The point for us really is to ask the Lord, God, what is your assignment for me? What is your specific assignment for me? All of us are sent by God, but God has a specific assignment for each of us. 
Back in 2013, in the year that I was supposed to be ordained as an elder of the Methodist Church in Singapore, I was four years into ministry. One day I was uh, in worship with the body of Christ, and that day the Lord, I believe, gave me my life-defining call and vision. I was already in full-time Christian ministry, pastoral ministry, as I've said, four years, but the Lord had an even more specific call upon my life. And He showed me a vision. First of all, I saw lots of people walking about at Raffles Place MRT, so-called the heart of the city, the CBD area, all of them wearing nice business suits, you know, dresses, walking about, just going about their daily lives. And as I watched them walking about in all these expensive clothes, I suddenly felt the Lord's great compassion for them. I felt the Lord's compassion because outwardly they looked so nice, but inwardly they were lost. And I felt the Lord's compassion, who is going to bring the gospel to them? Who is going to shepherd all these people? And so that's when I began to weep uncontrollably, uh, almost completely overwhelmed by the Lord's compassion for His people. I forgot how long I wept, but in the midst of this vision and this very deep compassion from the Lord, I heard the Lord say very clearly, not audibly, but very clearly in the Spirit, with authority, with love, He said to me three words, Pastor the city. Pastor the city. I was shocked. Oh God, what is this about? Why are you telling me this? How am I going to do that? Seven years on, has it become clearer what it means to pastor the city? I don't think so. I don't have very specific strategies or detailed instructions. But when the Lord brought me on this journey to rekindle my Wesleyan heritage and studies, I discovered that maybe just part of this idea of pastoring the city, and by the way, I don't think I'm the only one called to pastor the city. There are many pastors. Maybe this idea of, this Wesleyan idea of spreading scriptural holiness across the land is part of something that the Lord wants me to do. The Methodists were raised up, John Wesley was very clear, with this specific purpose, to spread scriptural holiness across the land. And that is to influence the culture around with God's values. To influence society with God's values. For all that is written in God's word. And so maybe this is part of the fulfillment. So I prayed about it, asked church leaders to discern. And so the church mission for us, and I hope you can join us in this, is really to spread scriptural holiness across the land. Wherever God has called us, infuse God's kingdom values to wherever God has sent you. Be that salt and light. So together we can transform society and culture. I truly believe that God wants to use the Methodists again to raise us up for a new work of revival and renewal. But I cannot do this on my own. I need all of us to do this together. Frankly, I don't know why God would lay that call upon me, pastor the city. I don't think I'm very perfect. My wife knows how imperfect I am. But if not for this vision and for the subsequent journey that God has brought me through to study in Emory, to rekindle the Wesleyan flame, I wouldn't even dare to dream of such an audacious vision or mission for the church or for myself. But the truth is, God has been faithful with God's hands upon me, so I know this is my call. My challenge to all of us is this, join me. As Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are on this journey of growth towards perfection together. And together, we spread scriptural holiness across the land. Please join me in pastoring the city, teaching them God's ways, His holiness, the way of honouring each other, the way of humility, so and so forth. And it begins here at Amokyo Church as we build God's home with a heart. A heart for God, a heart for each other, a heart for the community. So that's my story. But I want you to know that God has not only given this call to those in full-time Christian ministry. No, 
is given to every believer because every one of you is a child of God. And God has given all of us specific assignments. We all just need to seek God, at least the help of the Christian community. If you don't, know your, don't yet know your specific calling, ask brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray alongside and let God guide you to discover your specific callings. So that's the first reason why Paul was so adamant to preach the gospel, because he had a very specific calling from God. But there is also something inherently powerful and beautiful about this gospel message that Paul had to preach it at all costs. In the coming weeks and months, we will go into the details of the gospel message. That's why we are doing this Roman series, right? It cannot be settled in one sermon here. But for now, I just want to say our gospel, uh, our scripture text sorry, for today gives us three reasons why Paul had to preach the gospel, the inherent beauty of the gospel. First of all, the, be- the gospel is promised by God. The gospel that we preach comes about as a result of promises by God, God fulfilling his promises. I shared during Christmas at the Tegi Vista Seniors Activity Centre that Christianity did not begin with Christ's birth at Christmas. No. Actually, the birth of Christ is the fulfilment of centuries of prophecies that God would send His Son, God would send a Messiah. And Paul himself writes, verse 2, This gospel is promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so when we preach the gospel, the first thing we are telling the people is that God is faithful. The proclamation of the gospel is a sign of God's faithfulness, that God is faithful to keep all his promises, all his promises, prophecies in the Old Testament, he fulfilled it in the coming of Jesus. And so the first reason we preach the gospel is because it testifies to God's faithfulness to humanity. Yes, we know that the gospel is about God, that God sent his one and only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We also know that every time we celebrate communion, as we will do in a short while, Christ is de- uh, has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, we declare this. But what lies behind the gospel message really is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Sometimes we wonder, can we trust God when we cannot see God? The gospel is the evidence that we can always depend on God. Because he who was faithful to keep all these Old Testament prophecies and promises will also be faithful according to his word. We live in a world where the value of faithfulness has been severely compromised. More and more young people get in and out of relationships as if they were changing clothes. And I don't think actually young people, it just seems like the blame is put on them. In some circles, to remain pure as a virgin is mocked. In Singapore, the divorce rates among Christians, unfortunately, is the same as the general population. So in the world, the value of faithfulness eroded, mocked even. Yet despite this mockery on the surface, deep down inside each of us, there is a longing for true faithfulness. Even the cheating spouse hopes that their spouse does not cheat on them. Children, for example, the clearest example, crave the loving, faithful attention of their parents. And every child grows up wanting their parents' marriage to be knitted, well, tight, loving. Every child is distressed whenever their parents quarrel. You don't need to teach them that. Why? Because it's wired into us. By the way, here, I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip if you've gone through divorce, going through divorce. That's not my point here. I understand how difficult it is for you. My point here simply is that faithfulness is wired into us as human beings. 
You know why? Because we are created in the image of God. And God is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. Humanity will fall. We will be unfaithful. But God is always that faithful God. And so when we declare the gospel, we are really saying, Hey, look, God is faithful. This is the good news that we bring to you. In this world where they cherish so-called unfaithfulness, we declare a counter-cultural message. God is faithful. And if you are looking for faithfulness, come home. Come home to be with Jesus. So that's the first beauty of the gospel. The second is the power of God. The gospel has the power of God. Verse 5 says, It has the power to make people obedient to God. We have no ability, you know, as parents to make our children obedient. Sometimes I feel like I want to strangle them. But it is the gospel who gives us the ability to be obedient, to be faithful. Verse 16, gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. And not only that, to break down all barriers, which is again the main reason why Paul wrote that letter, to break down the barriers between the Jews and the Gentile believers. I don't have time to flesh out all the details. Again, as I said, that's why it's a sermon series. So akan datang the next few weeks. Hopefully we'll hear more and more about this gospel. But as I preached a few weeks ago, the word of God is prophetic. The word of God always has power to fulfill its purposes. So the proclamation of the gospel has the power to break down all barriers. In the light of the context of the church of Rome, where Gentile believers did not look favorably on Jewish believers, Paul writes to assert that the gospel indeed has this power to break down all these barriers. If we are left to ourselves, none of us has the ability to love someone else unconditionally. Even of the same skin color, we already cannot love each other faithfully, unconditionally, much less someone of a different race or different culture altogether. As the eight-month series has depicted and as history has shown us repeatedly, whether it's Hitler's uh, extermination of the Jews or the colonial uh, imperialism, post-colonial reaction, so and so forth, racial discrimination is deeply embedded in us human, human race. But it's the gospel. It's the good news that God declares it is possible to break down all this racial discrimination and prejudice. That's why... That's the miracle, the power behind the gospel to make us who are so different united as one as the body of Christ. That's why Jesus said, By this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Our world is extremely broken. You know it. You face it maybe yourself. Only the power of the gospel can unite people together. So for what is worth today, I declare prophetically that this word will indeed break down all barriers for us here at Amokyo Church because of age, gender, race, whatever situation we may be, Lord, make us one. Help us to be that family. And the world really needs to hear this good news, that racial discrimination can be a thing of the past. No government can solve this problem because it's a problem of the heart and only the power of the gospel can reach out in love to help us live in peace and harmony with one another. Finally, the gospel is beautiful because it is a present, a free gift from God. Paul writes in verse 17, the gospel reveals a righteousness from God made freely available through faith. It's not a new message, maybe for some of us a bit stale because we've been hearing all the time, but this is the simple gospel truth. None of us needs to earn God's salvation or approval or favour. In fact, we can't. 
But God has freely made this available to everyone, regardless of our past history, our sins, that this free gift of eternal life and salvation and coming to the kingdom of God is available to anyone as long as you have faith to believe God's word, to believe in what Jesus has done. So this is the good news we declare to the world, that God does not hold them to their sins, does not hold their sins against them, God wants to set them free from their sin. God wants to forgive them. God wants to love them by bringing them, adopting them into His family. In the book of Romans, God will, uh, Paul will talk about adoption. Adoption is highly significant in Roman culture. You can be of a different race altogether. In those days, that's quite common. And when you're adopted, you become 100% equal to that person's orig- uh, natural-born children. Equal inheritance is highly significant. We'll talk about that when the time comes. But this is the good news. God wants to adopt all of us to give us the same status as Jesus, as it were, as his own son. This is the good news. A free gift, not just of salvation, but of status as Jesus. So in conclusion, for these three very simple but very powerful reasons, Paul declares in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now you know why he's not ashamed of the gospel, not just because he's called, but because the beauty of the gospel is so inherent. He was willing to suffer and endeavor to preach the gospel to all Gentiles. It's such a wonderful piece of good news. You, you and Galios, uh, which translate, uh, translate as gospel, really means good news. Uh, the good news is not just a set of beliefs. It is life-changing information. If you truly believe that news, your life will be turned around. And this is the information, the piece of good news we declare. God is a faithful God. God can transform our divided humanity and make us one in Christ Jesus. That God offers hope and salvation to everyone, even the worst of sinners. So how can we not preach this good news? How can we not preach this good news? Before we close, I believe God wants to give us the opportunity today, some of us, to respond to that call of salvation, the invitation to be part of God's family, but also for some of us to hear and respond to the call to preach the gospel to the nations. Some of us have been hearing the call to go out as a full-time missionary. Some of us feel that God wants to call us to embark on more mission trips, to mobilize people for the mission field, so and so forth. I do believe God has called all of us to preach the gospel, but there are certain individuals that God has placed upon your hearts to do this specific work of missions. So before we close, let's close our eyes. And those of you at the hub as well, I invite you to close your eyes, even though I cannot see you, but God knows. I invite you to respond to these two calls. First of all, in case there are some who do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and today you hear that you can come to be part of God's family simply by faith because of what Jesus has done. I invite you to just raise up your hands where you are, uh, put them up quickly and put them down so I can pray with you. Anyone here in the sanctuary? Amstutz Hall? Yes, I see your hand. Put it down. The hub, I'm not sure, but since we have at least one brother here, let's pray together for him first. Lord, we thank you that salvation has come to our brother. And maybe others too who have raised their hands, but I can't see. But Lord, you have seen their hearts and their hands. Lord, we thank you for the free gift of righteousness you give to 
our brothers and sisters. Help them now to walk in their new identity that they are beloved children of God. Amen. Let's continue to pray. Let me now invite those of you who feel a call to missions, to be involved in the work of missions, whether it's a full-time missionary or maybe going on multiple trips or just embarking on uh, mobilizing people for missions. If you are called by God to be involved in some work of missions somewhere, can I just invite you to raise your hands wherever you may be. We'll pray for you as a church family. Yeah, I see your hands. Yes, I see your hands. Anyone else? Okay, let's pray again for our brothers and sisters who have raised their hands. Lord, we thank you that you have given a very specific call, a burden to some of our brothers and sisters here for the work of missions. Lord, strengthen them that throughout life's challenges and difficulties, they will not lose this call. Help them also to be patient in walking step by step with you and your Holy Spirit so that they will not also attempt this call on their own strength, but to rely on your strength and your grace step by step all the way. So Lord, we commission them as well today and bless them that they truly may bring forth your gospel to reach all peoples. And so Lord, we pray for all of us as a church, as you have given to us a clear vision and mission, that Lord, you will also fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. So truly we may be sent forth from here to declare this good news to wherever you bring us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be persistent as Paul was. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.